David said, O Lord, rebuke us not in your anger, nor discipline us in your wrath, but be gracious to us, O Lord, for we are languishing. Heal us, O Lord, for our bones are troubled. Turn, O Lord, deliver us. Save us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a fearful thing to call you unjust. It is a fearful thing to even raise such a question that you might be unfair in your treatment of man. We want to cry out, as David did, Lord, that you would not rebuke us in your anger, that you would not discipline us with your wrath, but instead be gracious with us. Deliver our lives from sin and death and save us, Lord, for the sake of your steadfast love. This is what we ask this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to understand a difficult passage and in so doing, rightly worship, rightly rejoice, and rightly serve Christ our King. This is what we ask as a church that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do that work for us this morning that we might honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. We are in such desperate need of God's grace. Even as those who have been redeemed by grace, we oftentimes think that we don't need it as much as we do each and every day. If you have your Bible, please open up to the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 16. If you were here with us three weeks ago, we started looking at a a mini-series entitled For Love and Glory, and we've been looking at the manifestation of God's love and glory through a few key events in human history. Three weeks ago, we looked at God identifying Himself, revealing Himself as the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and Him doing that for His own glory. Two weeks ago, we looked at God creating man in His own image. Male and female, He created them for His own glory. And then last week, we had a chance to go into Genesis chapter 15 and look at the covenant that God made with Abraham promising that he would, through Abraham's descendants, bring a seed and redeem many from our sinful states. And he was going to do all this for his own glory. Over the past three weeks, we've had a chance to see God's very good creation. We've had a chance to see man's fall from God's grace. And last week, we had a chance to see this promise that was made, that God was going to make things right. This promise coming through Abraham, his family, and his seed. And if you were here last week, you noticed something very odd about the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. That when he made this covenant, he he entered into it as a, a smoking pot and a fiery torch, and he walked through these sacrificed animals alone. Abraham did not participate. In other words, God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants unconditionally. 
apart from Abraham doing anything good or bad, apart from Abraham being a particular way with God. In other words, he was saying, for my name's sake, for my glory, I will bless Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants that come after the church of God through Jesus Christ. I will do this great work even if you are not faithful. God says, I will keep my covenant for my name's sake. And so what we found last week, if you were listening closely, God is saying this, I'm going to unconditionally elect some to be saved, children of Abraham, by faith, and I'm not going to choose others. God is saying, I'm going to save some, I'm going to impute my righteousness because of faith on some, and I'm not going to impute it on others. God is saying that he will sovereignly elect those who will be his children now and forever. This is known as the doctrine of unconditional election. The teaching that God does not foresee an action or a condition upon you in the future and then bestow upon you his grace. Unconditional election is just that. It is unconditional that he, before the foundations of the world, decides that he's going to choose you, that he's going to come to you, save you, redeem you, and bring you into his presence for all eternity. That's the, the, the doctrine of unconditional election, and that's what God is teaching us. This doctrine is fundamental and prevalent in all of sacred scripture. It permeates the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we struggle with it intellectually because we think, That's not fair, and we struggle with it emotionally because we think, what about my family, and what about my friends? What if he does not choose them? Now, if you were raised in a non-reformed church, then I would argue this doctrine of unconditional election probably seems harsh, and maybe to some of you, unbiblical, counter the word of God. My intention this morning is not to make a full defense of the doctrine of unconditional election. I do not have the time for that. But what I would like to do, because most of you understand it and most of you already believe it, what I would like to do is go a little bit deeper and see if we can get an understanding of why God does what he does. I would like to look at this morning the purpose of God electing some and not electing others. I would like to look at the very foundation of what God means when he says, I am righteous. And then I would like to very briefly at the end see what our response should be to both. So let's do that this morning. I'm going to need your full attention. These verses are very difficult. Your flesh will fight against them. You will want to hear it differently. You will want to say, no, that cannot be. So I need you to be present in the Holy Spirit, hearing with all your might, that you might track this. The gems here are glorious, and I I want to serve up a meal that we enjoy, okay? So let's do that this morning. Let's look at one, God's sovereign election, two, his divine righteousness, and three, man's faithful response. God's sovereign election, his divine righteousness, and man's faithful response. Point number one, his sovereign election. For his own love, for glory itself, God says, I'm going to sovereignly elect, unconditionally choose some to be saved and others I will not. Look at verse six. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. Listen, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so one of the first things we see in this very difficult teaching in Romans chapter 9 is that not all people are going to be saved. We see one step further that not all the children of Abraham are going to be saved. Only those who are the children of promise, only those that God will come to and impute his righteousness by faith, just as he did Abraham, the father of faith. Look again at verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel will be saved. And then in verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Isaac, Sarah's son, not Ishmael through Hagar, would be chosen by God to carry the blessing. Jacob, not Esau, would be chosen by God to carry the blessing. And this was, listen, my beloved, this has been always part of God's ordained plan before anything was ever created. Jacob, he said, I love. And Esau, he said, I hated. So the plan of redemption from the very beginning was to choose some, God choosing some and God not choosing others. Now, again, if you are from a non-reformed background, you might say, well, I understand this differently. I understand that God chose Isaac and he chose Jacob because they were good boys. And and he knew they were going to believe, and therefore he he imputed righteousness upon them. And And he didn't pick Ishmael and he didn't pick Esau because they were bad boys. And by their own free will, they would not choose God. And he knew all this. If you're even a little more sophisticated in that theological argument, you would say this. You would say God foreknew what they would believe and therefore he chose them based upon his foreknowledge. This is called the prescient view or the foreknowledge of God. The problem with that is that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures do not teach that God, based upon his foreknowledge, looked down the corridors of history and said, that person's going to believe, that person's not going to believe, therefore I'll choose that person and I won't choose that person. That's called post-destination. The Bible teaches predestination, that God chooses you before you ever were. We don't like that. And we don't like it because the flesh cannot stand the thought that our sin is so bad that it even renders our will enslaved. We hate that thought. We hate the thought that we don't have some say, some decision, some free will in choosing God or not choosing God. And so we despise this teaching. And it's one of the reasons that Paul has to belabor it because even in Rome they said, we don't like what you're saying. You're saying that God decides. That's what the Bible says. The Bible's always said that. And so we say things like, well, that's not fair, or that's not just. This passage, and dozens of others, and I would argue the entire meta-narrative of the Bible is God sovereignly electing people to be saved. This is what He does. He is the Lord of salvation. Look again, speaking of Jacob and Esau, look at verse 11. It doesn't get more specific. In fact, it's amazing to me that the doctrine of sovereign election can actually be denied by any professing believer. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Now listen to this in verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
In other words, before Jacob and Esau were ever born, before they ever did anything good or bad, before they ever put their faith in or remained faithless toward God, God said, I'm going to choose Jacob and I'm not going to choose Esau. He will sovereignly elect. And he does it, according to verse 11, to magnify the purpose of election. To magnify this very teaching that we might sit here on a Sunday morning and glory in God because he sovereignly chooses to save some. So he does it to magnify this teaching, not diminish it. Now God, he is our creator. And so if we, if we take a step back on this, before we go any further in understanding why he does it, he's our creator. We belong to him. God has the right and the authority to do anything he wants with us. He is God. We are the creature. If he wants to sustain us, he may sustain us. If he wants to kill us, he may kill us. If he wants to save us, he can save us. He is God. We are the creature. I think we could just stop right there, and this would all make sense. But we don't like that. The flesh wants to be God, and we want to tell him what he needs to do. He can save everyone, or he can save no one. Unless we forget, my beloved, as we saw last week, in order for Father Abraham to be saved, the righteousness of God had to be imputed upon him. He was a sinner, dead, that needed to be made alive. Right? So God need not save anyone. In order to save someone, God must act. He must move. He must take you, and you're dead. He must breathe life into you. He must impute his righteousness upon you. He must enable you to have faith and believe and follow Christ, or you would remain dead. If God simply did nothing, and we said, God, just be fair, all mankind would perish. That's not a prayer that we want for the church. That's not a prayer you want for humanity. Just be fair, God. We don't want God's fairness. We want God's grace. We want the unmerited favor. We want God coming to us and making us alive and giving us the faith to believe. We forget these things. We think somehow that we deserve the gift. We deserve the grace. What we deserve is eternal judgment and condemnation. The question I believe that we should be asking this morning and the question I believe we will ponder for all eternity is why did God save anyone? That is a fantastic question. You know your heart. You know your life before Jesus Christ. You know the rebellion against this thrice holy God who must judge sin. The question is, why would he save me? Why would he save any of us? There's a deeper understanding, and I so want us to get this. You may have to go back and listen to the sermon again. Maybe. If so, please do. I want us to get this. There's a deeper understanding of why God does and why God must elect some to be saved. Why the doctrine of unconditional election is real and why he exercises it. If everything God does, if everything God created, all movements throughout all human history with all people is for his glory. If that's the purpose of all things, listen now, then God's freedom to choose some and not others is a necessary manifestation of his glory. He must be free to choose or he is not God. Look at verse 14. Paul now is going to respond to the argument that the Romans are going to make. 
It's the same argument that's been made for centuries. It is the argument of the flesh. Paul says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Why? Because he's choosing some and not choosing others. Is God unjust? Is God unrighteous? That's a fearful thing for me to even say. It should be a fearful thing for you to hear. You say, don't say that. Look at what Paul says. By no means, verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul expects the Romans to have an intellectual and emotional problem with the doctrine of unconditional election. He expects that. He expects them to say, doesn't that make God unjust? Is that not fair? If we cannot save ourselves and God doesn't save everyone, then does that not make God an unjust God? If we cannot save ourselves and God chooses some to be saved and not others, doesn't that make him somehow evil or wrong? If man being saved does not depend on upon our will or upon our doing, but God's merciful choice, then how can God remain righteous and do such a thing? How can he sovereignly elect and remain just? This is the question that Paul was posing to the Romans because he knew they would have it too. Now, Paul's answer, if you haven't noticed this, it's a very strange answer. Look at verse uh, 14 and 15, the latter part of verse 14. He says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He said, is God unjust in any way? By no means. And then the answer he gives, the justification for this. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now you hear that answer and you think, that sounds more like a restatement of the doctrine than an answer as to why he does it. It certainly doesn't sound like a very good answer to me as why it renders God just in this action of unconditional election. But if you understand it in the context of Exodus 33, and that's the verse and the passage that Paul is quoting, then I believe there will be a profound answer here for us. All right, so here comes, here comes the filet mignon, and it's coming out on the plate. So get your knife and get the fork out and get ready to eat this. Are you ready? Are you listening? Give me an amen if you're listening. Exodus chapter 33, Moses is talking with God at the tent of meeting and beseeching God to come with him and with the people into the promised land. Verse 17, listen. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I'm going to come with you. I'm going to go with you and the people. And then he says, I will do this for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. To know someone by name, biblically, was to know them. It was to know them intimately. It was to know their heart and their soul from the inside out. And so God says, I know you, Moses. I know you by name, and I'm going to come with you, and I'm going to come with the people into the promised land. And then Moses thinks, well, this is fantastic. I want to know you by name too, God. And so he asks him in verse 18, he says, Lord, please show me your glory. Moses is not being gluttonous. He's saying the same thing back to him. He says, show me your name. Show me who you really are. I mean, I know you're powerful. I know you're mighty. We've already had the, the run on Sinai. I know, but show me who you are. Show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you. Now, God's response to Moses 
is the same response Paul gives in Romans 9 to the church at Rome as to why God is not unjust. Same answer. Listen to what God says to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. I'm going to show you who I am. My name is God. And then he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So listen now. Don't, I don't want to lose you. Moses wants to see God's glory. Moses wants to know God, and God says, I will show you myself, I will show you my name, and my name is, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And so intimately tied to the glory of God and the name of God is the freedom of God, that he is absolutely free from any external force that might bind him. He is free. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. It's a very strange statement in the context of Exodus 33. Moses said, I want to know you. I want to know your glory. And he says, I will show you my glory. I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy. And Moses probably thought, what does that have to do with anything? He's declaring his absolute freedom. In other words, God's name and his glory is magnified in God being free. God being free. God is saying to Moses, as God, I am completely and I am totally free. I'm free from any restraint of any kind that originates outside of my own will. There is nothing, there is no one that binds God to anything. God is revealing an essential quality of being God. It is necessary for God to be free to be God, to be unconstrained, by anyone or anything outside of himself, renders him God. And this makes sense. If he's bound by anyone, angels, demons, people, the universe, if he's bound by anyone or anything outside of himself, he can no longer be deemed God because God must be free. He must be supreme. That would include, my beloved, the supposed free will that people have to choose God or not choose God. If that doctrine is true and that mankind can say to God, I will or I will not be saved based upon my own free will, then that free will now binds God and renders God godless. It strips God of his freedom. It cannot be. If, for example, to put this in human terms, part of my being a father is exercising my God-given responsibility and authority as head of my house to care for, to nurture, to raise up my children, to know and love and serve Christ. If that's my, my ordained duty, my, by my name, Father, and I relinquish that power to my children, I give it up. And so my children's will determine when they will eat, when they will sleep, how much TV they will watch, how many video games they will play, whether or not they go to school, whether or not they go to church. If I relinquish that and I give that to my children, I am now bound by their will and I can no longer claim the name or the office of father because I have ruined it. They may still call me dad, but I'm not their dad. People may say, well, that, you're the father of, the, of those children. That may be, but not in practice, in name only. If God is bound by man's will in determining who will or will not be saved, 
then he no longer can, by definition of his name as God, as Yahweh, be called God. Do you remember when Moses first encountered God at the burning bush? Do you remember that? And, and God wants to send Moses back to Egypt to set his people free. And, and Moses says, okay, but who am I going to tell sent me? Moses said to God, suppose I go tell the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now listen, do you see the parallels in what God is saying to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and what he says to Moses in Exodus 33 and what Paul is trying to communicate to the people in Rome? They're parallel revelations. His glory, his name. He says to Moses, I am who I am. He says to Moses, I have mercy upon whom I have mercy. He says to Moses, I am free. I am God. No one binds me. Moses got it. To be I am means to be free. In other words, God's name and the very essence of his glory is that he is not constrained by anyone or anything outside of himself. No one can bind God. He is completely free. He is 100% self-determining. And that's why he is sovereign. And therefore, at a much deeper level than simply his right to elect his creatures to save some and not others, which is certainly true. At a much deeper level, we see that God is revealing himself as God. When he says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, he's saying, don't you see? I am God. I am who I am. I am free. Moses got it. Paul got it. And that's why he's saying to the Romans and saying to us, how dare you call God unjust? The very fact that he chooses someone to be saved and someone not to be saved reveals that he is free and not bound by anyone or anything and therefore is God. Are you still with me? Praise God for that. This is hard. This is hard. God's freedom cannot be dependent upon the human will or exertion, but it must be dependent upon his desire, his decision to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy for his own name's sake, for his own glory, because he is God and he is free. So first I pray that we see that this doctrine of unconditional election should never, ever, ever cause us to question God's righteousness. The exact opposite when you hear that God sovereignly chooses out of love and grace to redeem a people for himself, when you hear him do that, you say, he must be God. Because only God can do that. Only God is free to do that, to elect. So we say, okay, he's doing that based upon righteousness, that he is a righteous God. Point number two, his divine righteousness. Some will not be satisfied with this answer. Those of you who, who press your critical thinking into this, you will not be satisfied and you will say, all right, if he is God and he is free to do whatever he desires outside, he, he's not bound by anyone or anything outside himself, then why not save everybody? That's a legitimate question. Why let anyone perish? You just told me he's free. He can do this. The simple answer is this and then I will try to explain it. God is not constrained 
by anyone or anything outside of himself, but he is constrained by his own righteousness. God is constrained by himself. In other words, he cannot go against his own character and his own nature. So the question then is what? What is the righteousness of God? You just told me that he, he can't go against his own righteousness. What is that righteousness? When Paul posed it in verse 14, they were questioning. He was supposing the Romans' question of God's righteousness. He says, what shall they say then? Is there injustice? Is there unrighteousness on God's part? By no means. What did he mean by righteousness? We use these terms in Christianity all the time, and we don't give a lot of thought to them. John Piper, I think, had one of the best definitions I've ever read. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll unpack it. Listen. God's righteousness is essentially his unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory. Probably not the definition you had in mind. His unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory. God is righteous to the degree that he upholds and displays the honor of his name. That's what makes him righteous. He is righteous when he values most what is most valuable, and what is most valuable is his own glory. God would be unrighteous if he did not uphold and display his glory as infinitely valuable. So when you think of the righteousness of God, you must think of God displaying, upholding, and revealing his glory. That's a mouthful, I know. So let me try to unpack it with some scripture verses here. God's righteousness is not adhering to some set of laws. God's righteousness is not God making these laws and saying, I'm going to adhere to them and that will make me righteous. God's righteousness is not man coming up with a set of laws that we think God should adhere and submit to and then adjudicating him if he does or does not. If we then say to God, these are our rules and we think it's not fair that you don't save everyone. These are our laws, God, and we think it's unfair that you choose some to be saved and not others. We have a rule, God, that free will is supreme. And for you to tell us that you choose someone and you don't choose others and we can't choose that ourselves according to our own free will, then you must be unjust. You must be unrighteous. And the creature is saying to the creator, the laws the creator should abide by. You're shaking your head. It's insanity, is it not? It is crazy thinking. But if the righteousness of God is, as Piper said, his unswerving allegiance to his own name and his own glory, that changes everything. If we talk about God's righteousness being his upholding and revealing and magnifying his own glory, and that every single decision he makes in creating, in saving, in sustaining, is to maximize his glory, then we will approach this whole idea of unconditional election very, very differently. Take sin, because that is the problem. Take sin, for example. All sin, without exception, is a dishonor to the name of God. It is a violation against the character of God. It is a rebellion against the Creator God. Every single sin. And therefore, what is it doing to the glory of God? It denigrates His glory when we disobey His word. It belittles His glory when we go against His will. 
it, every single sin trivializes the glory of God because we take something other than God who is supreme and the most valuable and we put it in God's place. We make something more valuable than God when God is the most valuable and should be worshipped as such. Now, if the righteousness of God is upholding the glory of His name, then for God to remain righteous, He must do what was sin. He must punish it. He must definitively destroy it and permanently do away with it. He must. Because if He does not, if God, if sin dishonors God's name, and God says, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll play around with it, I'll put it away for a little bit, I'll I'll close a blind eye to it, or I I won't punish it completely, then he dishonors himself. And in so doing, according to our definition, he is not righteous. Because God's righteousness requires the magnification of his own name and upholding it. So what options does God have? Sin is in the world, sin is in our hearts, we live it, we breathe it, we exercise it. What options does God have? He has two, actually. He must destroy all sin. But he has two options because of Jesus Christ. Because you are a sinner rebelling against God in order to uphold and magnify his name, which is what renders him righteous, he must punish you. Or we know the great glorious news of the gospel, he can punish someone else. He can punish a substitute. He can punish Christ. He has to deal with sin. And so it must be done in one of those two contexts. Either you must die, your sin must be punished, and that punishment is eternal condemnation in a lake of fire. He must come to you and say, you have rebelled against me, you have destroyed my name, you have denigrated my honor, your sin is judgment, he must give that to you. That is our just desert. Or the glorious news of the gospel of grace is what? He sends Christ to receive the punishment that he might remain just and save sinners like us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, For our sake God made Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The unrighteous made righteous through Jesus Christ. This is the means by which God can continue to have his name glorified with saving sinners. This is how he does it. He sends Christ in order to remain just and save you and save me. He sends Christ to the cross. And he says to Christ, you will receive the just punishment, the full wrath of all those saved by grace. And Christ received that in his body on the cross so that God what? God remains the just and the justifier. Romans 3.26 God did this, listen, God did this to show His righteousness. God did this to show His righteousness at the present time so that He, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So God doesn't have to compromise the glory of His name by saving you, by saving me. God can remain completely just. He can remain righteous and have that fervent, unswerving passion for the glory of his name by redeeming you and destroying Christ. He can be just because Christ receives your punishment. He can be merciful by bringing you in to his presence for all eternity. The just and the justifier offering forgiveness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Following our Lord's triumphant entry into Jerusalem only one week before his crucifixion, 
He said this in John chapter 12. Listen. Jesus said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? He, he's getting this substitutionary atonement. He's getting a picture of what's going to happen upon the cross, that your sins, your personal sins, are going to be imputed onto him, and he will suffer for that so that he might impute upon you his righteousness. He's getting this, and he says, my soul is deeply troubled. And then he says, Father, save me from this hour. And then he says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour Then he says this, listen, verse 28 of John 12. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Let all creation see you are the Holy One. You are the free God. You are the most righteous God. Glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. This is what the Father said to Christ. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have and I will. And that was an answer to Jesus' prayer. Because Jesus wanted nothing more than God's name to be glorified. Jesus wanted nothing more than the righteousness of God, the unswerving passion for the name and glory of God to be made known to all of creation, heaven, earth, and under the earth in order to save sinners like us who daily, hourly belittle the glory of God with our sin and at the same time not trivialize his own name, God sent Christ. And he said, do the unthinkable work. Do the work that enables me to remain just and not diminish the glory of my name that enables me to remain righteous. Do the work to keep my name holy and save sinners. It is the great news of the gospel that we sinners Sinners who deserve eternal condemnation can come into the presence of God, a holy God, and not diminish His glory and not taint His name and not tell Him, Lord, become unrighteous to save me. But instead, we say, no, remain holy and save us through Christ. Don't punish us, punish Him. And the Bible clearly teaches that only the children of Abraham, only those who receive righteousness through faith will be saved. And therefore, according to the righteous decrees of God, God has deemed it best to redeem some and not others. He must. God could save no one if He so desired. God could save everyone if He so desired. But remember the definition of of righteousness, that God will maximize His glory that God will do everything to bring His name the most glory and the most honor. And so what does God choose to do? He chooses to save some and not save others. And in so doing, in having these two groups, those who He will judge justly because of their own sin, so He does nothing unfair or unjust there, He's being a just God, condemning them to hell, and those that He will come to and through faith impute the righteousness of Christ on and save and redeem and bring into his presence for eternity. By having these two groups, the redeemed and the unredeemed, God maximizes his glory, the revelation of his name, of who he is. In fact, a little bit further down, if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 22 and 23. He explains why he does this, why he saves some and not others. Verse 22 What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Look at verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, do you see what God is doing? In order to magnify His name, He says, I'm going to, I'm going to save some. And in my saving them, they're going to see the incredible mercy I poured out in Christ. And that mercy will cause them to rejoice in my name and glorify my name forever and ever. And then I will also show them and the angels and all creation that I am a holy God and a just God and a wrathful God. And I will pour that out on those who refuse to be saved. And all creation will see my wrath and my mercy. All of creation will see my power and my grace. And all of that, as you know, came to perfect consummation upon the cross of Christ who received the full wrath of God that we might receive His grace. If God saved everyone, we wouldn't see His wrath. We wouldn't see the power. We wouldn't see the justice. If God saved no one, we wouldn't see the mercy. We wouldn't experience the grace. We couldn't talk about the glorious Savior of Jesus Christ if no one was saved. And therefore, and this is probably the hardest part for us to swallow, in order for God's name to be most glorified and most honored, in order for God to remain righteous in that unswerving devotion to the glory of His name, He chooses to save some and not others. His sovereign election stands that He might be most glorified. So I pray that we see that God's unconditional election of Abraham and his descendants by faith is based upon two fundamental things. His absolute freedom, which is essential to his character and nature of God, and his complete devotion, his fierce commitment to protect his name because he is righteous. Now, if you've stayed with me, we've come full circle, and maybe you haven't noticed it, but I'll point it out to you. If God's righteousness is being completely devoted to upholding and revealing the glory of his name. And the glory of his name persists in his absolute freedom in having mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Then in order for God to remain righteous, he must sovereignly elect. In order for God to be the righteous God, the holy God, he must have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. He must choose. And therefore, the doctrine of unconditional election is not only true, it is glorious. It is magnificent. I pray you will take this teaching and you will go back and you'll meditate on it more because the more you see it, the more God is glorified. That was His purpose. All right, let me close on this. What are some applications? There are, there are dozens that come out of the doctrine of unconditional election. I'm just going to give you two. If we believe that God sovereignly elects some to be saved and does not elect others to be saved unconditionally, not, there's nothing that we do. We don't, we're not good. We're not bad. We're not born into this family or get this education. There's nothing we do. He comes to us when we're dead. He makes us alive. He gives us the faith, and we believe. If we believe this, not because Luther taught it or Calvin taught it or Edwards taught it, if we believe this because that's what the Bible says and that's what the Bible says, we want to throw all these names on it, 
I'm, I'm, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Calvinist, I'm an Arminian. That's what the Bible says. So we either believe what God said in his word or we attach something to it. The question for most is, what does this do for me? I mean, how, how am I supposed to live in the context of this teaching? Again, the applications permeate all the Christian life. If I had enough time, I would do the, a good Puritan 25-point closing. I'm not. Don't panic. There are, every aspect of life ties into this teaching, every single one. But I'll give you the two main ones because here are the two main questions that come from this teaching. And you've probably heard them and maybe you've asked them yourself. If God chooses before anyone's ever born, before anyone does anything good or bad, before anyone ever believes anything, if God chooses, then why evangelize? I mean, why share the gospel with anybody? He's already made up his mind. Another question. If God chooses, if he, if he chose me before I ever was born, before everything did anything good or bad, then why can't I just be bad? Why, why, why ought I not just continue to engage in sin? He's already chosen me. You said it. Unconditional election. Why can't I live the life that I want to live? I'm not going to evangelize, and I'm going to be a complete reprobate sinner for the rest of my life based upon that teaching. Why share the gospel? Let's do that one first. Why share the gospel if God elects all who will be saved? Why? God saves his elect by grace through faith. Remember last week. It wasn't until Abraham believed that God considered him, counted him righteous. In other words, no person can be saved apart from faith. Faith is a necessary condition of salvation. You go, oh, I got you, Pastor. You just said faith is a necessary condition, and you just spent 20 minutes, 30 minutes, saying that God elects us unconditionally. Which one is it? Which one is it? It is true that God never saves someone who refuses to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Faith is necessary for salvation. Our problem isn't which one is it. Our problem is order of operation. Which comes first? How does a man believe? God does not sit back and wait and say, all right, who's going to believe? Who's going to believe? Who's going to believe? You are saved. Who's going to believe? He doesn't do that. He's not waiting for us to believe. Remember, we are dead in our sins and transgressions. No one who is dead can believe anything. We're all dead. So what does God do? God comes to us, he came to you when you were dead, and he made you alive. He breathed life into you, he brought his Holy Spirit upon you, he turned your heart from stone to flesh, he gave you a passion for God, a desire for the kingdom, eyes for Christ, and then what? And then you believed. So he started the whole thing. Your faith is a product of your salvation. Your faith is a work of God redeeming you. And so you must have faith in order to be saved, but if you are saved, you will absolutely have faith. John, the apostle, said in 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, past tense, born of God. Because you can't believe unless you're born again. Jesus said very clearly, you can't even see the kingdom unless you're first born again. And so our saving faith and the righteousness that comes to us is the result of God already making us alive, not the other way around. 
you don't believe, and then he makes you alive. He makes you alive, and then you believe. That's why Jesus said in John 6, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. The Father must call you. The Father must woo you in order to come to Christ. So rather, my beloved, rather than dissuading us from sharing the gospel, if someone must profess Christ, must have faith in Christ to believe, then they must hear the gospel. Right? We must go out and tell them. We must have the beautiful feet that tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, that they might repent and believe, that they too might be saved. Paul said of God's elect in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? All the more reason for God's chosen people to go out and share the gospel boldly. What will hold us back? No charge against us. The doctrine of unconditional election should embolden us and strengthen us and make us a brilliant light in this dark place that we go out and we can't stop telling people about Christ, which I pray we do. We have this great hope to offer a lost world. Paul says in Romans 10, 11, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's the faith. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. What a powerful motivation for so many who think their sin is so bad they cannot be saved. The doctrine of sovereign election is such a powerful motivation to come to people and say, you think you're so bad that you can't be saved? I had a young lady one time, years ago, a former student, witnessed her, shared the gospel, and she said to me, God could never save me. I said, why? She goes, you don't know what I've done. <laughs> that is a horrible thought. It's a hateful thought to think that you're so sinful that God cannot save you. And so I said to her, how dare you put your sins above the love and grace of God? How dare you say that he cannot save you? And then I shared with her, I said, listen, do you know that all those who will be saved were ordained to be saved before anyone was ever born, before anyone did anything good or bad? Do you know that? And she, she did not. And she said, what does that mean? I said, that means that if you're ordained to be saved, God already has your name written in the book before you did anything bad. And then she said to me, what then should I do to be saved? Acts 16, 31, Paul said the same thing to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. No sense, no truth in hopelessness with Christ. There's no life you can live, no sins you can commit over many years that Christ cannot abundantly cover with his grace and his blood. The doctrine of unconditional election should compel us to go out and call people to repent and believe. They might be saved because it has that power. Lastly, our unconditional election, it should not only compel us to be bold with the gospel testimony, it should shape the way we live our lives. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, listen, he said, put on then as God's chosen ones. Here you are. Here's your title. If you know Christ, you've been chosen. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love. If you know Christ, you've been, you've been hand-selected <laughs> of all the people in the world. He came to you and he said, you're mine. And he called you by name. And he made you alive. He, he gave you his Holy Spirit to live a holy life. To be a compassionate people. To be a kind people. To be a humble and meek people. He chose you before anything ever was to be a people that would bear with one another and forgive one another. He chose us to be a people that would be bathed in love. A love for God, a love for one another, and a deep love for the lost. This is who you are, chosen ones. The magnitude of knowing that you've been chosen by God should not fill you with pride. It should bring you to your knees and cry out to God, why me? Why me? And he will say to you, for my glory. For my glory. No sin in degree or magnitude can prevent you from being one of God's elect. He is free to save whomever he desires. And so the right response is to cry out for mercy and be saved. He's free to save. He's not bound by anything other than his own righteousness. So call upon the name of the Lord and be saved if you do not know him. Cry upon Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Don't outsmart God. Don't try to outsmart God. Don't say, if God chooses me, then I don't need to choose him. Do what the Bible says and say, today, this day, I know whom I will serve. I choose to serve God. Don't outsmart God and say, if Christ has taken hold of me, then I need not strive for him. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me, to know Christ. This teaching should embolden us and strengthen us. It should compel us to righteousness and holiness. It should compel us to leave today and go out to our family and our friends and our neighbors and say, you must hear of this God don't miss the Savior. He's too good and He's too glorious to miss. The greatest gift of the gospel itself is the majesty and beauty of Jesus Christ. Tell people about the holiness of God. Tell them about their sin. Tell them the need for a Savior. But don't forget to tell them about the beauty and majesty of Christ. Don't let them miss it. Don't let them miss it for all eternity. You will spend an eternity, my beloved, if you know Christ, rejoicing in his name, glorifying in his name. How glorious if we can go to those people that he's ordained to be saved and bring them the gospel that they might repent and believe too. You were created to glorify the righteousness of God. You were created to make much of God and not yourself. And when you find your complete satisfaction in Jesus... When that joy in your heart is steeped in the love of Christ and he truly becomes for you your all and all, when your days are raptured in Christ 
and swallowed up in his grace and mercy, and you go day after day walking in faith in the love of Jesus Christ, then, listen, then your desire too will be the righteousness of God's name, and you will live in accordance with it. Your daily life, your daily purpose will be to glorify the most glorious one, the one who is infinitely valuable, and you will spend your whole life doing that. And what a glorious life that is. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, it is indeed a fearful thing to even question your righteousness. We do not, Father. We want to be in line with it. We want our lives to magnify your righteousness by living to your glory and your honor. Make us a people who rejoice in your freedom as God to choose and not to choose. Make us a people who long to see this great mercy upon whom you will have mercy. Make us a people, Lord, who do not strive for our own righteousness, but live daily for yours. Show us your infinite value. Show us Christ. Still so much idolatry, Lord. Still so much sin. We're so thankful, Father, that our destiny is not contingent upon our being good or bad. We are so thankful that our eternity is not contingent upon what we do, but your faithfulness to us. Make us faithful. Make us humble. Make us a people who put on love so that we might be brilliant testimonies to this very dark world of your glory and majesty. And Lord, for your own name's sake, glorify yourself here in this community. Glorify yourself at Cambrian Park. Glorify yourself here in the South Bay. Make your name known in a mighty way as we approach Resurrection Sunday and the culture begins to speak of and talk about this person, Jesus Christ, rising from the dead. Magnify yourself. Do a mighty work here, Lord. You are worthy of it. Call us into that, I pray, and make us faithful to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.